Well, we have a problem. We have a major, major problem. Whoever is in charge is doing everything wrong. Just everything is wrong. It's wrong. Not only are the powers that be doing everything wrong, but the authorities are morally responsible for this failure of leadership. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? I'm talking about the way God relates to sinners. The way God relates to sinners. Forgiving them without having earned it. If you paid attention to the songs we just sang, we sung about the way God has freely forgiven us for the things that we've done wrong. And so throughout the ages, Christians have claimed that forgiveness, salvation, justification, redemption is by free grace from God. And other religions, uh, non-religious people have had two objections against this. How can God simply look at morally wrong people, guilty people, and say, I forgive you? There's no incentive in there for moral behavior. If you don't require that people earn their forgiveness and earn their right standing, then there's no incentive to clean up their act. Imagine children in your home who every time they do something wrong, you simply say, I forgive you. And there are no consequences. There is no rebuke. There is no change. It's just forgiveness. It'd be moral chaos. It'd be anarchy. And secondly, and this objection is even worse, it claims that God himself is immoral. That God himself is immoral. Imagine a judge who day after day has lawbreakers in front of him. And he hears the complaint against them. And he agrees that they are morally culpable, that they are guilty of the crimes for which they've been charged. And then he says, you're guilty, but you can go. You're guilty, but I forgive you. Next up, another criminal who's guilty of his charges. And the judge says, I forgive you. You can go. And this is exactly what God did with one of the greatest heroes of the faith in the Old Testament, King David. David raped Bathsheba and killed her husband. And the prophet Nathan said to him, your sins are forgiven. It's scandalous. It's very scandalous. And world religious, religions and secularists throughout history have accused Christianity of this great scandal. And you know what? This is akin to what Habakkuk himself was complaining about as well. You might remember that before Easter, I hope you remember that before Easter, Tommy preached two sermons on the book of Habakkuk. And he did a great job on it. And he he said that in chapter 1, the prophet Habakkuk is complaining about the injustice that's going on in Judea. And saying, Lord, why don't you do anything about this injustice? And the Lord says, well, I am going to do something about it. I'll bring the Chaldeans, also called the Babylonians, in to deal with the injustice. And Habakkuk says, time out, wait a minute, the Chaldeans, they're even worse than what I'm complaining about in Judea. 
So that's no solution at all to bring the Chaldeans in to rebuke the Judeans because when the Chaldeans get here, they will have no regard for who's righteous and who's unrighteous. They will simply devastate the land and they'll kill indiscriminately. How can the God of holiness treat injustice so arbitrarily and blindly? And then in chapter 2, look at Habakkuk chapter 2, beginning in verse 2. The Lord said to me, so this is the Lord's answer to Habakkuk to these objections. The Lord said to me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so that he may run who reads it, which may mean he'll get the word out far and wide. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. The Lord is telling Habakkuk, there's a way that I will deal with this, and it's in the future. It might delay. It might seem like a long time, but you just keep waiting for it. For behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not right within him. But here we go. The righteous shall live by his faith. The righteous shall live by his faith. That is the Lord's answer to Habakkuk's complaint against injustice in the land of Judea. And here's what the Lord means by that. Habakkuk, even if you don't live to see it, there will be a day when I will set all records right and I will make sure that the righteous will live. And how are they righteous? I reckon them righteous if they have faith, if they have trust in me. Now to Habakkuk, this is a strange answer because his complaint is that people are going to die. Therefore, the Lord's answer is that they will receive resurrection life in the latter days. In the last times, I will give them life even if they die in this time. It's a promise of the resurrection. It's a promise of new life when the Lord works this miraculous uh, new salvation in the latter times. Now, this verse is very critical. And this is why Tommy asked me to preach on it. Because in two sermons, he couldn't give as much attention as he wanted to be given to it. This verse, Habakkuk 2.4, is quoted three times in the New Testament. Three times in the New Testament. Now, that may not seem like a lot, but when you consider the size of the Old Testament, the fact that one verse is pulled out and cited by three different authors shows how important it is to them. And it's quite important. It's used in Romans, it's used in Galatians, and it's used in Hebrews. And each time it's used, it's employed in highly theologically significant ways for that book. In other words, Romans, Galatians, and Hebrews, as we know them, would be entirely different if Habakkuk 2.4 were not used at the, precisely the places where they are. And so this is no peripheral uh, verse tucked away somewhere in the Old Testament. Rather, it is a key verse for shaping three of our most beloved New Testament books. I wish we had time to look at all three, but we don't. And so we will look at just the book of Romans, and how Paul sees the fulfillment of the Lord's promise of Habakkuk 2.4 happening in his time, and therefore happening in our time as well. So if you turn in the book of Romans, turn to chapter 1 and look at verse 16. So this is Romans 1, beginning in verse 16. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, 
For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And so there it is. There's the citation of Habakkuk 2.4. But what's interesting about this verse in Romans is that it is Romans' thesis statement. It is the key verse in Romans where Paul lays out in a nutshell basically what he's then going to explain in the rest of the book. It's his thesis statement. So what is the main issue at stake here? Look again at verse 16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Now verse 17. For in it, in the gospel... The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. In other words, now it is put forward. Now it is opened up to the public. Whereas if it was concealed for Habakkuk, now God's righteousness goes public. And we will see that God is not morally culpable, but he is in the right in everything that he does. And so you would expect the very next verse to launch into how God is right in justifying and saving sinners, but he doesn't. Verse 18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Do you see that there? The righteousness of God is revealed, but wait, first, the wrath of God is revealed. And so if we're going to understand How God is in the right to justify sinners by faith, we have to first understand that Habakkuk, you were right about one thing. You're right about many things, but you're certainly right about this. God does judge sinners. And if we want to appreciate the power and force of the gospel, we need to appreciate first our own very sinfulness and how the wages of sin is always death and always has been. And so in Romans, the rest of chapter 1, all of chapter 2, and most of chapter 3 are devoted to describing the sinfulness of humanity and that God's punishment against sin is right. And I think this is one of the easiest doctrines in all Christianity actually to argue for. We all know we come up short. We all know we've sinned. Eric just prayed of the very simple things that we've done all week long, creating a cumulative effect of sinfulness just in the homes where we live, let alone when we go into the marketplace or when we go to work or we deal with people who are in competition with us and these sort of things. And it is good, it is good that we have a God who cares about that, who doesn't sweep things under the rug, but brings sins into light and judges and punishes them. It's good on a philosophical level to have a God like that, but it's not good for us who are the sinners. And so by the time Paul gets to Romans chapter 3, look at verse 21. Because now he turns back to his main idea. Romans 3, 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. 
who God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. Just, uh, therefore, Romans, therefore, is a demonstration of how God is righteous, how he does everything right. And that is now demonstrated finally, lastly, in history through Jesus Christ. This, therefore, is now the answer to Habakkuk's question that has been lingering for hundreds of years. How can God be right in the way he simply accepts sinners through faith alone? How can he be so gracious? And how did he do that is the main focus for this morning. Look again at verse 24. Look again at verse 24. There's our key word for the morning. They are justified. They are justified. This is a key verse. It's a key term. It's a term that we have to understand. In its basic definition, it means to be declared innocent. For the judge to declare you to be in the right. To be just in his eyes. That's the textbook technical definition, but on a more street level, in a more common vernacular, Tim Keller defines justification like this. It's a validating performance record that results in acceptance. A validating performance record that results in acceptance. So think of a job resume. You're applying for a job, you put together a resume, and it'll have a list of your work accomplishments. And, it, and those work accomplishments validate, they're your performance record, they validate that you're fit for that job. And if the person doing the hiring agrees, yes, that performance record validates the rightness that you should be here, then you get the job. The same thing is true with a, 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 a school resume. If you're applying to higher levels of uh, education, you put together a different kind of resume, you put together an academic resume which lists your performance record in academia, and if the people doing the accepting into the school think it's good enough, well then it validates your acceptance into the school. The same is true uh, when you want to propose to a girl. It's a different kind of resume, but traditionally you call up the parents and you say, here's why I'm a good guy. <laughs> here's why I think I can take care of your daughter. Here's how I have some kind of future and not going to disappoint you or the family uh, or your daughter. It's a different kind of validating performance record that serves as a resume so that you can be accepted by your in-laws and allowed to marry the girl. Well, every religion, every philosophy, and every social system works this way. This makes sense to us, that we earn what we get, and we get what we earn. It's very simple. But Paul is telling us about a completely different system for acceptance with God. That we can have a performance validation record that is not our own, but given to us, and counted as though it is our own. And that's what justification is. It's Jesus' performance record, therefore counted to us, so that we can be accepted 
by him. And so this passage here in Romans 3 teaches us that this kind of justification is by grace alone. It is not earned. It is by faith alone. And it is in Christ alone. So we'll go through those three points right now. That this kind of justification, this kind of validation before God that gets us acceptance with him is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Look again at verse 24. We are justified by his grace as a gift. And there's the scandal. Therein lies the scandal. That for everything else in our life that we have to earn, the most important thing that we need, justification, validation in the sight of our creator, is not earned. Everything else is earned. This is not earned. But God freely bestows this upon us. We are unable to put together our own resume, and so God will simply accept us. You can understand how this is so scandalous. Even Christians, even Christians, even those inside the community of believers struggle with this. And somewhere deep down still insist on earning our own standing before God. Because when we can earn our own standing before God, when we think we've performed well enough, We've put together our own resume. It gives us a little more control. A little control over God. Clearly he has to do what I ask, what I do, because I've I've earned at least this much. But to let go and let God be God, the administrator of sovereign, free grace, can be a terrifying thing to throw yourself entirely into his hands, even for Christians. But this is why it's scandalous. It's hard for us to wrap our mind around it. Look again at verse 25. Justified by his grace, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, verse 25 now, God put Jesus forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So while salvation by justification is by grace alone, it is appropriated and it is experienced through faith alone. It's two ways of saying the same thing, that there's no merit here on the part of the sinner by which they receive this justification. Now we should pause. We should pause for a moment. And we should ask ourselves a question about this word faith. What is faith? Seems like the simplest question in the world. Does it really deserve attention on a Sunday morning? Uh, Yes, it does. Because faith has become a very strange word lately. Uh, I was watching one of those talking heads news shows, news shows uh, more, more recently than I do typically, and one of said talking heads was sharing about his faith and how his faith is what he leans upon during this time and other times of trouble to get him through these particularly difficult times. And he was waxing eloquent about the power of faith to do that for him. But the interviewer then said to him, you know, uh, it was a moment of transparency. I was kind of shocked she, she said this on national television like this. She said, you know, I just cry a lot, and, but I don't want my son to see that. So I go for a jog, and I cry when I run so that my son doesn't see that fear and vulnerability. So what do you say then to people like us who don't have that kind of faith? And I thought, oh, this is is a great question. Great opportunity here for for a little bit of truth. 
But what he said was then, well, you, you don't need faith in anything particularly religious, you understand, because that's what she was asking. I'm not particularly religious. Where, where do I turn for this kind of strength? You don't need faith in anything particularly religious. You just need faith in, well, I mean, like, you have faith in your son. <laughs> you, you have faith in your son. You love your son. You hope in your son. You, you really care for your son. And that can create the kind of faith inside of somebody to get through. And I just thought for a second, wait a minute. You're defining faith, therefore, as psychotherapeutic wishful thinking. And you know what? That, con that definition is everywhere. While no one would say it that way, that's exactly the way people treat faith. That it's a psychotherapeutic, wishful kind of thinking. Positive thinking. And it doesn't matter what your faith is in. You just need some kind of anchor. And it could be religious. Or it could be your son. Or it could be your stamp collection. You know, it just it, it doesn't matter. It, it doesn't actually need an object to put your faith in. It's just psychotherapeutic wishful thinking. Positive thoughts that will give you a little bit of stamina at this time. And I would argue, and, and uh, I can't think of a theologian who would disagree with me, that that is not the definition of faith in the scriptures. And it's disappointing that such a powerful word for the Christian religion has become so bastardized in our time. The word faith in the scriptures, when you see it, you should think of the word trust. Trust. Trust is the word. Trust is the appropriate synonym for the word faith. Because trust requires what? It requires someone or something that you're actually counting on to do what you trust them for. I'll give you an illustration. When I was uh, a young man, younger man, let's put it that way, uh, I, I lived in Colorado and I had a lot of odd jobs to get by. And one of them was I worked at a ropes course, a ropes course, which had high ropes where we rope, uh, belayed people in so they didn't fall to their doom. Uh, but they also had low ropes course where there was no uh, safety mechanism. If you fell off, you only fell about a foot. And these were all designed for team building exercises. No one ever did these ropes courses by themselves. You did them with others, either people from your church or your work or your family or something like that, to build trust in the experience. And the most terrifying uh, uh, part of the ropes course was not the high ropes. People would go up there. They, they enjoyed it. It was something called the trust fall. The trust fall was a platform only about four feet off the ground. And as you stood on it with your heels on the edge and a tree in front of you, because it was holding up the platform, you stood there like this. And then people behind you were standing like this. About six or eight people were standing like this, you know, diagonal from each other, creating this uh, net, as it were, with their arms and hands. And the person on the trust fall cannot see if they look forward whether those people are back there. And you understand why it's called the trust fall. When the person is ready, they simply lean back like a plank and fall into the arms of their friends, find out if they're friends or not. No amount of wishful thinking, believing, having faith in myself, or faith in the you know, fill in the blank, anything else is going to keep you from hitting the ground. 
It's the people who keep you from hitting the ground. You see, your trust must be in something other than yourself who can actually deliver on the promise that they make. The promise these people are making is, I'm here. We're here. We will catch you. So trust needs an object to fall into that can actually deliver on the promises made. So I don't know what someone's thinking positively and hopefully about someone's son will do for eradicating the coronavirus. I don't know what someone's therapeutic wishful thinking and stamina will do to bring 20 million people their jobs back. We need someone or something that has actually made promises and we can put our trust in the one and the promises they have made. And that leads us to our third point. Justification is by grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. Because the question becomes, faith in whom, faith in what? So look again at verse 24. Look again at verse 24. Justified, given that validating performance record, by his grace as a gift. Now here we go. Why would he do that? How does he do that? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Well, what, what did Christ Jesus do? What does Christ Jesus offer? Verse 25. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. And there's the next key term that we need to wrap our minds around. Propitiation. Redemption is in Christ. We're to put our trust in Christ. Well, what does Christ particularly do for us? What promise does he make? That he forgives your sins by a propitiation in his blood. So, what does propitiation mean? Propitiation is the turning aside, or better yet, the absorption of God's wrath. Do you remember how I said we are all sinners and we all deserve the punishment for our sins? God is a holy and righteous God who calls sinners to the carpet to deal with them as their sins deserve. Well, God in his wisdom has found a way to fully deal with the sins and injustices of our lives and forgive us at the same time by putting Jesus forward to take the wrath for our sin-breaking. And that's what propitiation is. God says, I have a punishment for these sinners. And Jesus says, I'll take it for them. Not to be too simplistic about it, but I think this works. Jesus Christ is our divine wrath umbrella. If you walk outside when it's raining, you will get wet. But if you have an umbrella, you don't make the rain magically disappear. But the umbrella does get wet. Jesus Christ does not plead our case and say, look, just ignore their sins. He says, if you have wrath, Father, against their wrong deeds, then I will take it for them. And God accepts this. We know God accepts it because he raises Jesus from the dead. When I taught high school, I had a student, it's actually it was several students who said, uh, justified, I'm justified, I'm justified. That means it's justified, never sinned. It's a play on, play on the term. Uh, before God, it's just as if I'd never sinned. Justified, right? And I said, that might be a helpful way for remembering um, 
bad theology. <laughs> because it's not just as if I'd never sinned. No, the doctrine of justification and propitiation to the blood of Christ says the exact opposite. It, it says, yes, you have sinned. I know you've sinned. You know you've sinned. God knows you've sinned. And he doesn't just ignore things just as if I'd never sinned. Rather, he sends Jesus to deal with that, to take his own wrath upon his shoulders and be that atoning sacrifice so that those who are in Christ can say, God will never deal with me again in anger or wrath because he has no more. If something is happening in your life, you should never, if you're a Christian, if you're in Christ, you should never say, God is angry with me. God is doing this to me because he's angry with me. No, he has, he, he's angry against sin, but in Christ's propitiation, He's dealt with that sin. He has no more anger, and he'll never be guilty of double jeopardy. God will never judge the same sins twice. Because he's dealt with you in Christ, you are justified. And that brings forgiveness. And this is why Luther could say that he is a sinner and righteous at the same time. Because he is a sinner. He does do wrong things, and so do we continually to this day. But nonetheless, we are righteous because of Christ. And this is how Paul answers, I should say, how Jesus answers Habakkuk's question. How can God do this? Look at verse 26. Look at verse 26. It was to show his righteousness at the present time. Habakkuk and others, you've been waiting. It's to show his righteousness at the present time that he might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. So God is an upright judge. He does deal with sin. But wisdom, love, and grace have brought Jesus in to be your divine wrath umbrella so that you are eternally dry from the wrath of God. Paul concludes where you would think in verse 27. Look at verse 27. What then becomes of boasting? It is excluded. But what kind of law? The law of works? No, the law of faith. Do we boast in our own merit? Do we boast that God has accepted us because we're better than our neighbors? Because we keep his law a little bit better than somebody else? No, again, grace is a gift. It is not brought on by merit. And this, of course, leads us back to the scandal. It leads us back to the scandal. Okay, maybe God can be just and justifier. He can deliver divine judgment and justice. He's just. And justify those who have faith in Jesus Christ. Amazing how those can be brought together. But there's still one more problem. What's the other problem? There's still no motivation for holy living. There's still no motivation to be a better person. Because again, if you just let sinners off the hook, great, you figured out all the philosophical details with Jesus, but I just, uh, you know, as long as I don't die on Saturday night, I'll be fine, get to church on Sunday, everything's good, right? But there is a motivation for holy living. Absolutely there is. It's called regeneration. As the book of Romans carries on, the tone moves from this legal dialogue to ethics. And here's how that change happens. Look at chapter 6. Look at chapter 6. Verse 1. What then shall we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? See, Paul anticipates this objection. 
If you're forgiven, hey, let's just continue in sin. Then God will be all the more gracious because he has all the more sins to forgive. By no means, verse 2. How can we who died to sin still live in it? But do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in his death, we shall certainly be united with him in the likeness of his resurrection. Paul understands that there is a very real sense. This is a mystery, but this is the way Paul understands it. That when Christ died, so did the old self, your old self. And so therefore, when Christ was raised to life, you were raised with him to live a new life. This is regeneration. This is what Jesus himself called being born again. It is a supernatural reality of the work of the Holy Spirit to change people from the inside out. And so far from lacking a motivation, the Christian gospel gives power, actually, for new moral living. It's not just a motivation. It's not just, hey, here's an extra piece of candy if you do well. It's here's new internal moral power flowing from the heart to live and be a disciple of Christ in a way that is pleasing to God. In Victor Hugo's book, Les Mis, uh, which was made into a movie in, uh, twice recently, but in the 1995 version with Liam Neeson, there's a powerful scene right in the first 10 minutes that explain the rest of the movie. And it looks like this. Jean Valjean is released, he's the main character, and he is released from prison, 19 years of hard labor. And so when he gets out, uh, he has nowhere to go. He has no home, he has no family, he has, nowhere, he has no money in his pocket. All he has is papers that show that he's a, a convict and he's a criminal. He's basically left destitute in the society to really just law break again and end back into prison. But he knocks on the door of a bishop's house and he stays the night. And in the middle of the night, he wakes up, he goes downstairs, and he steals the silverware that the bishop had in his, in his cupboard. The next scene then shows the police bringing Jean Valjean back to the bishop. And the bishop says, as you might expect, I'm very angry with you, Jean Valjean. And then the police officer chimes in and says, we found these spoons on him. He claims you gave them to him. The bishop said, yes, of course, I gave him the silverware. But I'm angry because why did you not take the candlesticks as well? Very foolish of you. Madame Giseau, fetch, fetch the silver candlesticks. They're worth at least 2,000 francs. Why did you leave them? Hurry. Monsieur Valjean has got to get going. He's lost a lot of time. Police officer says, so you're saying he's telling the truth? Thank you for bringing him back. I'm very relieved. When the police officers then are gone, Jean Valjean says, why are you doing this? Jean Valjean, my brother, you are no longer the property of evil. You no longer belong to evil. With this silver, I have bought your soul. 
I've ransomed you from fear and hatred. Now I give you back to God. And from that moment on, Jean Valjean is a changed man. A man with a changed heart. Not because of something he did or he earned. No, no, no. He earned more prison time. But by the sacrificial act of another, Jean Valjean is a new man. It's, of course, a picture. Incomplete, but a picture all the same of Christ's work with us. You are Jean Valjean. I am Jean Valjean. We are the criminals. We are the prisoners. We are the souls who need to be bought by the sacrificial giving of another. We are the ones who need to be ransomed. The antagonist is Inspector Javert. He cannot wrap his mind around forgiveness or redemption. He's a man of rules, a man of procedure. No grace, only hard lines. And so he spends the rest of the story pursuing Valjean, trying to break him down and change him back into the old man that he once was because he cannot believe that someone could be changed, that an act of redemption might actually create a new person out of him. Well, it turns out that Javert only destroys himself. How can we talk about this in the middle of an international crisis? Is it not like fiddling while Rome burns? Ivory tower religion, philosophical squaring ideas away when people are tangibly suffering? I would say that now is the perfect time to talk about justification before God. Because our mortality is evermore before our faces. And so if you are not a Christian and you are watching this, I would return to the original premise that you and I are both sinners. We are all sinners. And we all stand before a holy, powerful, sovereign judge, the creator of the cosmos, who is able to give us eternal life or eternal damnation because of our legal standing before him. Therefore, where will you trust? What will you put that proverbial faith in? I say trust in Christ alone. Michael Ramsden, an apologist, uses this illustration. He says, imagine when you die, this won't happen, but this is a helpful illustration to get the point across. You appear in an empty movie theater. You appear in an empty movie theater. And God says to you, welcome to the theater of divine judgment. Tonight's show, you're the star. You're the main character in tonight's movie. On the screen here in just a moment will be everything you've ever done, good and evil, and also anything you've ever thought and ever felt. Every inclination of your heart will now be put on this screen. Every good and positive, but also every lustful, greedy, selfish, angry, even murderous ideas and feelings of your heart and mind for your entire life will be put up on this screen. Now, waiting outside the doors are the people who will appear in this movie with you. They're ready to come in. You tell me first, what rating would you give to this movie? Today is your day. Today is your chance. For Jesus to say, 
I will take his place as the lead character in that movie. I will bear the consequence for all my, his actions. And I will receive the punishment that is due for everything that's wrong in this movie. Today is your day of salvation. Today is a day of amnesty where God offers justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Now, if you already are a Christian, if you already are in Christ, the doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, is as poignant as ever still. Because does this doctrine not motivate us also to forgive others? It reminds us that we ourselves are not God. We ourselves are not the Holy One who can demand a perfect obedience from everybody else. And so when someone sins against us, it makes it all the more easier to forgive them without demanding a pound of flesh. Maybe there's someone in your own life right now that you need to forgive and you find that hard. Well, the doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, is a powerful motivator to move us towards the ease in forgiving others. Secondly, it also motivates us, does it not, to ask for forgiveness for ourselves. It's common, commonly hard to ask for forgiveness because in asking for forgiveness from others, from saying I'm sorry to somebody else, means you first have to admit I've done something wrong. But we have these expectations of perfection that therefore we're embarrassed whenever we have to admit that we were wrong. But if you understand the doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, then you will understand that original premise that, again, you're a sinner. You will make mistakes. Of course you'll make mistakes. Of course you will. And if you can wrap your mind around that in the first place, then it's so much easier to say, yep, there was another mistake. There it was. Who do I need to ask forgiveness from this time? So it motivates us to forgive others. It motivates us to forgive ourselves and to ask for forgiveness. And it also erodes the fear of man. The fear of man. We're so terrified in what other people think of us. Our performance at work, our performance in, in sports, our performance in school, wherever we turn, we want people to think, wow, they've got to figure it figured out. They're at the top of the class. But if you understand in the first place that God has justified you, that God has said you are in the right. How much easier is it to simply not fear, therefore, what other people think about you? And some people will not justify you. Some people will not think that's a validating performance. Okay, you know what? But God has, and you can move on with your life. Finally, I would ask you, what do you boast in? Remember verse Romans 3.27? That boasting is now excluded. But what do we boast in? Now, when I ask you what do you boast in, I don't mean what do you go around patting yourself on the back saying, look at me for this one, right? Rather, I mean, when you lie down at night and you think to yourself, what validates me? What in my performance validates me in my own eyes and in the eyes of others? That's the place of boasting. Is it athletics? Well, what happens when the games are over? Is it grades? I guarantee you, you continue long enough in school, you will meet somebody smarter than you. Is it upward mobility through the uh, layers of career and economics and social standing? Well, what happens when the road suddenly turns and your career is on the rails? Is it family? 
is that the secure confines and context of family. Well, if that's the place where you find your boasting, I just say be careful, you'll destroy your family. Because your family does not exist as objects, people to be loved, but rather commodities that are there to help you boast in how you've got everything together, and you will destroy them with expectations that are unfair and unforgiving. In other words, I think in our social demographic, we boast in, generally speaking, that we've got life figured out. My athletic days are over, your schooling days are over, but we're progressing through our jobs, we're improving our homes, we got better cars, the future looks rosy, we just got everything figured out right now and for the future. But do we really? If, that's the place, if those are the places where you boast, what will happen when they're all stripped away? And they will be stripped away, that's what death is. Death is the stripping away of everything you thought you had under control. C.S. Lewis said, this is how I know Christianity is true. No human being could have ever made this up. In our minds, we get everything we earn. We earn everything we get. Then how much more important, this most important thing, our salvation. But when he heard of God's radical way of justifying sinners by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. He knew that he was encountering wisdom and love that was far beyond the minds of this world. If you are an unbeliever, I say to you, trust and boast in Christ. And you will receive that new life that comes with redemption. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I say the same thing to you. Trust and boast in Christ alone. And you will not be disappointed, either now or or with your last breath. Let's pray together.